You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is The Comedian's Comedian. And today I am very pleased to bring you this conversation with Mike Babiglia, who is someone I've been trying to get onto the show for years and years and years. Uh, I was thrilled to spend some time with him. I'm so grateful to him for making time in his astonishingly busy creative life. Um, we spoke in his uh, in his studio from in a little corner of his studio from where he uh, produces his fantastic uh, Working It Out podcast, which has recently celebrated episode 100 with uh, his frequent collaborator Ira Glass of This American Life fame. Um, and uh, we are going to talk about everything. We're going to talk about there's lots and lots of process stuff. Uh, but, I nearly called him Babigs there. <laughs> His website is Babigs. I don't know that I'm on Babigs terms with him. But uh, Mike is uh, coming to Edinburgh for the very first time with his smash hit new show, The Old Man and the Pool, which I have seen. And it is just, I mean, it's, it's brilliant and it's just as good as all of his other brilliant, brilliant shows. We're going to talk about the minutiae of, of his creative process from the rhythms of his jokes and his very deft and subtle use of things like implication and letting the audience catch up with you and the, the the sort of narrative combination of storytelling and jokes and there's a section we talk about um uh writing sort of the equivalent of one-liners like narrative one-liners um and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the the glue in between the bits and find out why he is only beholden to the owner of the circus and he brought that up so we're gonna get stuck into that in just a second there are 30 extra minutes available to you i would say unmissable minutes um, if you're a member of the Insiders Club, which includes uh, a fascinating uh, example, an anecdotal example of um, the application of the Jimmy Carr brain to the Mike Babiglia sentiment. Um, uh, well, I won't, I'll, I'll leave it there. If you're interested in that, you should definitely get to the extras. Um, we'll talk about the codification of the language in his shows. Uh, and also he tells us how to get the best feedback out of one Daniel Kitson. So all of that is available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, where you can also find ad-free episodes all the extras from every show that has them um, and much, much more, including special exclusive uh, insiders Q&As that we had on Zoom, um, plus the incredible self-help for comedians special with Amanda Donnett. So go nuts. Uh, you get to support the podcast with a minimum £2 a month donation or as much more than that as you like. Uh, and without further ado, here it, at long last is the wonderful Mike Babiglia. What's funny is I don't I don't view myself as in the movie industry proper. I'm more like I just make all of my shows, even the show I'm bringing to London, like The Old Man in the Pool. These are all self produced shows. I mean, it's Old Man in the Pool is my fifth show. Don't think Don't Think Twice was my second movie. Sleepwalk with Me was my first movie. All of these were independently financed, uh, you know, outside of some kind of larger system, and then. And then along the way, some of them more than others have made their way into mainstream uh, venues. Like with Old Man in the Pool, we ended up at Lincoln Center. Honestly, a total fluke because it just so happened that Camelot, uh, the the adaptation by Aaron Sorkin, was going in there and it wasn't ready yet. And so they held it until the winter. So they had like an open 12 weeks. So we ended up at Lincoln Center in the Vivian Beaumont Theater, one of the most gorgeous theaters imaginable. Um and even like when I'm in London, I'm at the Wyndham's, which is like one of the most gorgeous theaters in the world. 
but it's not i don't think it's because of i'm i'm on the inside i'm so certainly i'm not on the inside (laughs) (laughs) so i'm for it i'm for it is what my long answer my question your question i wonder i wonder what that means i wonder what being on the inside means anymore like is it like, is it the case that you, as someone who, like, you achieve a certain amount of success, you command a certain audience, you're critically acclaimed, those kind of things. Um, and, like, do you think, is there some point at which you will pass through a membrane and be on the inside? Or do you think maybe the reverse is true, that no one feels like they're on the inside and there is no inside? I think no one feels like they're on the inside. At least that's my experience. There's only a handful of people where, like, I worked with Tom Hanks recently on A Man Called Otto. And he was so nice. He's just beyond generous uh, and treats everyone in the cast and crew so well. But I think he also, he knows. Like, he's one of the only people I've met who, and Nathan Lane is like this too. I think they know that they're states people. You know what yeah. I mean? That they've been in the business long enough that they need to almost be an ambassador for show business. <laughs> Do, can you see yourself becoming a statesperson? I feel like you have a kind of statesperson role within comedy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I was I was talking to Liz Kingsman the other day on my podcast here, and and I said, uh, so I'm going, bringing the sh- old man in the pool to London. We'll see how that goes. And she was like, no, no, people are very excited. <laughs> uh, and I go, I think, but I think it's, uh, maybe just comedians. I don't think people. I don't think people in England know who I am or what I do. No, I mean you're tip, on your tip you have of, Netflix specials. And yeah, do those do people watch not, American Netflix comedy specials? There, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, certainly everyone I know, everyone I speak to, yeah. I'm a, I'm in I'm a comedian. I'm in the comedy world. You're known and respected, and I have to say, I I kind of um. I asked for some uh, listener podcast listener questions in the Facebook group associated with our podcast, and I got the response was very large, but it was also notable how intelligent the questions were. Well, I, mean? I, like, always I, really, I feel like you are known amongst the kind of the, the, the comedy fans. I always that's so nice to hear, and I'm curious what those questions are. But also, like, I always say that I don't have the most fans, but I have the funniest fans. Like when okay. I did, I did a photo of Liz Kingsman was here in my studio and and I took a photo of her dog uh, talking into the microphone on the other end and uh, and me on the other side and I just wrote caption this in my in my uh, Instagram and there's like three hundred replies and they're really good <laughs> they're like as good as I would write for that thing. so yeah I have, fu- I have funny fans which is a blessing. So with regard to your kind of your sense of yourself and whether or not you're kind of you have a, a statesperson uh, role within comedy and and uh, maybe a maybe a role that is not quite so kind of ground in yet in, in the wider world of showbiz. When you're coming to Edinburgh, you're coming to Edinburgh. This is the first time you're performing at Edinburgh, which I yeah, is that right? I can't shocking. believe it. Yeah, no, it's have you been you've been there before. No, I've never been to Scotland at all. Um, and I've always wanted to go. And I've always, you know, all of my British uh, associates, Jimmy Carr and Daniel Kitson and all these folks have said to me for years, like, it's a, they're like, your, your shows are Edinburgh shows. 100%. So, like, why aren't you going to Edinburgh? And I, and I would, and I'll basically always say, like, because I, I want to go, but it's like a a huge loss financially. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And That's so why it, they want you down the yeah. crabs in the bucket. I'm like, come on, Mike, come to Edinburgh, <laughs> taste the pain. I don't think that people, I don't think civilians, your casual comedy observers, realize that when all these performers show up, that they're all like taking a bath to be there. You know, so for for the, I've had you know my daughter's eight, so I've, I, you know, I just. I have to pay the bills. So I've always like, I don't know. And it's never quite worked out, but now it's going to work out. It's, you know, we've, we made it work. And, and, uh, so I'm thrilled. I mean, I, I hope that it's the beginning of, I bring all my shows to Edinburgh. I, from now on, I really hope that's the case. And what will do, what will determine that? Honestly, I, it's really just seeing what kind of a, a life I can live 
there for a week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, for example, like I started coming to playing London because years ago, the Soho Theater asked me to do My Girlfriend's Boyfriend in probably 2011 or something like that. And I said, I'll give it a try. And then I'll, and then I rented an Airbnb and, and I was like, I just fell in love with London and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to visit here all the time. And so I think I've brought every single show since then. It really comes down to like, can you find your way? I think sometimes people don't realize with, with touring performers that some of it comes down to like, how much can they enjoy their lives while they're in the places where they're doing their shows? Like I, last summer I went to Iceland and Paris and London and that was a, a thrill because that's like, oh, my gosh, I get to bring my eight-year-old daughter to Iceland. And, and, and also there's a beautiful performance space there. So that's like a great, great experience. And you're and you're of a of a, a kind of maturity, a seniority within the, uh, the, the comedy world now that you get to travel with family that you get to go to places for decent lengths of runs, that there is, do you know what I mean? Like the, the touring comic you, I recently rewatched Sleepwalk With Me with like the, the you know, the fictionalized version of oh, you yeah. starting out in comedy and those Google Maps we all remember of like you know, <laughs> these enormous journeys and what have you. And it was, I was, I was watching that feeling just kind of bittersweet, thinking if I'd seen that movie when I was 20 before I'd ever started out in comedy, I'd, I would feel irresistibly pulled towards it i've been like god i have to do this and it's so funny now to look back at those kind of that very well depicted very richly that very evocative kind of depiction of what it's like starting out in comedy and to be able to look at it and go oh i have bittersweet memories of those times no completely and it's like it's that thing of like the character the character in the movie that the character i play in the movie it goes a checks into a hotel for the first time and it's this junky hotel but he's like <laughs> jumping on the bed and using all the towels and all this kind of thing and I think honestly, when I look back on that period, it's just like the reason why it, br- it brought me joy at the time is just freedom. It's just the idea of like there's no rules. Like e- even yeah. when you go to uh, you know university or whatever, it's like you have a you have a sense of like there's still rules. Like your your parents are gone, but like you still have to abide by some kind of decorum. I think if you travel as a comedian or an artist, like it really is the circus. It really is kind of like. I'm only beholden to the circus owner. <laughs> and how does that, how, how do you feel now with regard to the amount of rules that there now are in, in stand-up comedy as you, as you perceive it? Now, I mean, like the first most obvious one is you're a dad. Yeah. You're a dad in your mid-40s, as am I. Yeah. And I'm certainly confronted with a lot of like, oh, loads of the things that made this job brilliant are, are now all the things that make it really tough. But what, what I mean? for like, example, what? Oh, well, like the being away from home. Oh, yeah, it's awful. It's awful. It's just awful. And you think, oh, surely there's a point at which you can become like senior manager level in your own career where yes. you no longer have to go on the road. You're like, no, 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 you, you still have to. No, that's absolutely true. And I've ended up booking myself lately in New Jersey and Long Island and all these places that are like a two hour, three hour drive from New York so that I can see my daughter every day because she's eight. And it's that mm-hmm. thing where your child is eight and you're like, oh, I'm going to, I can't, I'm going to miss everything. And I wrote this joke the other day about how, uh, for probably might be my next show, I don't know, but about how when my daughter's eight and it's an amazing age, but I, I can't, I'm, I'm incapable of living in the present. So my brain goes to when she's 16 and she's going to be like, my dad is garbage you know and and that's the natural progression of life right like that's 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 how things are supposed to go but my dad didn't have to deal with that because when i was growing up people just disregarded their children you know what i mean like they like we we said it and my dad would be like is someone talking you know (laughs) and but now i have to be like she'll be like i'm you know my she'll be like my dad is garbage and i'll have to be like She's so right. I am garbage. She's so brave. I'm so proud of her. How can I amplify her voice? And I feel like that's that's sort of the funny conundrum of modern parenting right now is is that is that the the gold standard is just sort of yes anding everything your children say. Yes. So with with regard to that, and I didn't I didn't ask you to lead to this question, but just with with the idea of like um 
a new joke or like I've got a thing I've been thinking about. Yeah. Can we just kind of dig into what it is that that because that's a really you kind of a bit, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, like sure. a, yeah. Oh, that that has wisdom in it, and it has wit in it, and it's also you're kind of exploring these ambiguities and kind of making it relatable as well, I guess, to people who don't have children. You've kind of expanded it enough, and I'm like, oh, look, the creation of a, a Mike Babiglia bit, you know. Yeah. So, what does it feel like from the inside? Like when you when you have that and you go, that's, that's something in this. Like, what are the what are the aerials that are kind of that are kind of what what are the what are the the lights on the dashboard that are blinking that you go oh, I can do something with that I think and, that one I think that one came out of a consistent question that people would ask me is like how do you like being a dad and then I think well now it's great you know what I mean like I feel like a lot of times in your life it's like as a comedian you're just clocking what are the consistent questions being asked of you and what consistent a- questions are you asking of the world? And then taking one apart and just uh, breaking it apart and dissecting it. So I'm going like, she's eight, which is fantastic, and there's nothing funny about fantastic, right? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, I'm going to get on stage and tell everyone how much I love my family. Well, sure. yeah. I mean, there's nothing humorous <laughs> about contentment at all. Um, and so then it's like, well, what's discontent about that? Well, what's discontent is that I'm actually, I flash forward to when she's twice the age she is now. And then I'm, my dad is garbage. And then I'm like, for me, that's when it starts to be a, a joke because I'm like, oh, what's funny about that is actually that I will support that. That's how much I love my daughter. I will support that idea. I'll try to amplify it. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I'll try that on stage. I'll bring that to the comedy cellar down the street here, which is the equivalent of of your, I think, the store. Sure, yeah. Um, and 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 I'll try it. And if there's a connection between me and an audience, I'll go. Oh, okay. There's something there. There's a there's a the Venn diagram of what I think is funny about having a child and what the audience thinks is funny about having a child has a big enough uh, cross section that it's worth exploring and so I'll do it again and I'll try to pair it with like five other observations about parenting and see if I can create like a five minute chunk and then hopefully the five minute chunk becomes like a single story like I a lot of times I'll fudge the chronology of it to arrive at something that has a continuous causal five minute exploration like for example I have another I have another joke right now I've been telling about how my wife and I took Una to her ballet recital the other day and we're and we're in the audience we're crying and crying because she doesn't have it you know uh (laughs) i'm in the business i know you know and and, yeah our dreams are crumbling before us you know she you know thousands of dollars and lessons and and hundreds of hours taking her to the place and uh and then i and afterwards i go una and and of course i go no una you're fantastic i'm hugging her and she goes dad you would say i was fantastic even if i wasn't fantastic and i go you're right and I go, you're a lot better at logic than you are at ballet. And I say to the audience, like, I didn't say that part. I'm going to save that until she's 16 and she's telling me I'm garbage. Yeah, great. Okay. Okay. So, so, how, so I'm like trying to fight. So those are two different completely isolated bits and thoughts. One's a story from ballet and one of it was an observation from people asking me about what it's like. And then merging those two is a fun realization it's like oh okay then that that's about two or three minutes oh the fun so merging those two is a fun realization just talk just so can you just clarify what that sentence means you mean like the, the glue between those two bits yeah is a moment of realization that you get to inhabit yeah and a lot of it a lot of it bits. is clumping those two bits together like at the comedy cellar in like a casual 10 or 15 minute set and then re- improvising in the moment, um, I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm not. Gonna, I don't. I didn't say that to her. I'm gonna tell her when she's 16 when she tells me I'm garbage. And that's like an improvisation. I'm like, aha. Like, okay, that's good because yeah. that makes that a, a complete thought. Yes. And do you find that the is there a relationship between you, rem, like? How do you remember those moments when you're live on set? Are you like taping them and listening back? Uh, yeah, I audio record on my phone okay. all the time. I try to make and, it as discreet as possible, but yeah. Yeah. 
and and so you can but presumably you'll walk away from that night where you have that revelation going aha yeah that's a bit where those two will work absolutely yeah i wanted to ask about your um I got so I got so much, Mike. I've got so many questions on this thing, and you're so part, part of what I'm so excited about is that you are like you live your life as a comic. You kind of inhabit this place of I'm the guy that works it out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, certainly. You, I've sort of owned that idea that I'm just yeah I'm in process all the time. Yes, and I'm, <laughs> and we're in. I, we haven't even for those people who are listening and won't see a, a photo or a video of, of this we're in a sort of a different version, a different angle on your studio where you record working it out. That's right. Which is, which is itself, I kind of looked at it and I was, I, I saw it, I, I was kind of telling a friend, oh my God, Mike's studio, it's like my, it's like my dream <laughs> studio. You know I mean? It's just, you know, accolades and posters and then this incredibly colourful kind of thing, um, the, the, the cork board with all the, the different notes. And he said, yeah, but that is curated. And I thought, well, I, I mean, I guess it is curated. Like there's, there's some thought has gone into, as as is my humble studio here, you know, I, there great. are some things in there. Um but I, I'm interested in in that the place you have as a comic whereby you are delivering your persona, which is a curated version of yourself. But then you're also always striving to sort of uncurate it, to make it as real as possible. Well, it's funny, like I the Working It Out podcast came out of it was a pandemic necessity because we couldn't perform in front of audiences. And so. <clears throat> the moment we couldn't perform in front of audiences in America, I started doing these Instagram live uh, with other comedians like John Mulaney and Roy Wood Jr. and others to try to raise money. We called it Tip Your Weight Staff. Oh, raise yeah. money for clubs across the country because the first thing I thought was, oh, no, these the wait staffs are in big trouble because sure. they're just shutting down everything. Mike, was that the first thing you thought? That seems staggeringly kind of humble and generous. Fourth, was that the first? Fourth. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> we, fudged, we fudged the chronology, and that's an, that's an accepted part of the process. <laughs> the first was, how do I flee America and go to New Zealand? Uh, no, the second was, how do I hoard water? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it was about the fourth thing I thought of. Okay, okay, cool. But then, so we're raising some money for uh, for for comedy club staff, and then I was like, uh, people kept asking, "Where can I get the recordings of these?" And of course, I didn't know anything about Instagram Live, so I was like, "All right, well, let me just record these as a podcast where I'm working out material with other comedians." Well, 2020. I mean, I know in Britain you had a very different experience of the pandemic, for but for 2020. The entire rest of the year was shot, and mm. even a lot of a lot of twenty one, uh, if not all, you know. And so, uh, I really wanted to work on material, and I thought, and I also thought, like a lot of people, maybe we'll never perform in front of audiences again. Maybe we'll, you know. And so, I just thought, well, let me do a podcast where I work out material, which is the ultimate taboo of comedians which is sharing material with people before it's done because then you're essentially showing people the magic trick of the joke because jokes jokes are really like in a certain sense they are like magic tricks you know it's there's a setup which is something that we believe we agree you and i is true or me and the audience think is true and then the punchline which is like a left turn that goes somewhere that we didn't expect and if the joke is good enough, the audience really doesn't see it coming. Mm. And and uh, uh, and so, you know, and uh, like to have a podcast where you're talking about how you arrive at the left turn is yeah. kind of taboo. It's like showing people your work. Sure. Um, and the hope is that the joke is good enough. That it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It actually kind of puts my own feet to the fire. And then we got like 100 episodes in. And at that point, I was like, well, it's what I'm finding is, is people are showing up at the shows, having heard the podcast, and they, they're saying, I listened to all the episodes, and I saw the show, and I still enjoyed the show just as much as I would have, and maybe more, because I knew how he arrived at it. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. 
That's what I've been trying to achieve the entire time. <laughs> really? For, for yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a sort of process person. And I remember, funnily enough, I remember talking to, um, in, in fact, in 2020, I, I was doing like a kind of online sort of uh, stand up show, trying to make it work and trying to make stand up work in Zoom. I was like an early adopter of that kind of thing. And I, we had Alex Edelman on the show, who's a friend of mine. And I know is uh, apparently a, a mentee of yours. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm presenting yeah. a show on Broadway right now. It's incredible, called Just For incredible. Us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic show. I saw that at Edinburgh. And um, he uh, I remember like he was of all the people that appeared on the show. He was pad in hand oh i've written four hours of new material ah. like, you know mid 2020 because he's got this kind of you know just relentless work ethic he he does he's been on the podcast three times and he always has new jokes and he always wants to kick around variations on that because i i believe like the more variations you have on a joke the more likely it is you're going to arrive at something that's magical yeah yeah and so does it so when you do those shows like the work i mean it, it do you do like a working it out tour? Is that a thing that's going to happen? What I'm doing, that's what I'm doing in the States this summer. So I'm like in okay. Jersey and Long Island and I'm doing like little clubs oh, and I'm just doing completely new. I'm just doing an hour, 70 minutes of new material, completely different from the old man in the pool. Incredible. And that's because that's to me, that's a bit like the um, it. It, stay with me while I try to express the <laughs> parallel. But it's Penn and Teller doing the cups and balls with the see through cups. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's got Penn and Teller DNA in it for sure. I think those guys are great. Yeah, I just love the idea of revealing it like they know where the joke is going. And then do they? Because then you've got the opportunity, as Penn and Teller do, to to apparently reveal what's going on. And then you can hide other surprises within it. That's right. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> so I was I was uh, we were talking a bit about, yeah, the curated self, which I suppose is a very different way. I mean, the word curated sort of suggests a kind of uh, maybe a, a kind of a cunning or a deviousness that isn't isn't quite what I mean. But in terms of who you are on stage, in terms of the the difference, like the transition between you backstage talking to someone before you walk on to perform yeah. the old man in the pool and then when you walk out, like what how much of a transformation is it that takes place? Because you seem to be so in touch with us and so in touch with your admit maybe with a fudge chronology but a real truth about what you're trying to say you know, you've done so much work on kind of stripping away what is actually going on here what what is the reality of my emotional experience yeah i mean i think that the it was funny for my 100th episode i had ira glass on the host of host and producer of this american life uh which is a phenomenal podcast that's mm. <laughs> he's outdone both of us he's been on for two, i think i want to oh. say 25 years he's Some had a radio yeah. radio show that turned podcast and won pulitzer a uh, pulitzer and uh, peabody's and countless things but he was saying to me and i think he's not wrong he goes he goes you know you're so anxious in your life and you're so calm on stage how do you square that and I say, and he goes, but you're honest about that. You are anxious on stage. You talk about how you're anxious. And you, you know. And I said, when I'm on stage, I am calm. That's real. Like w when I'm on stage, I feel more at peace. And we kind of broke that apart. And I think that the reason is that there's much more of a sense of control and being in charge when I have the microphone mm -hmm. and I know how to do it. Whereas everything else in my life, you know, like I've been working on this bit recently about how I go, my wife and I, oh no, here's the beginning of the bit. I go, I think in every marriage uh, or every relationship, ideally there's a person who understands uh, heating and uh, electricity and uh, technical things, and uh, we we don't have that, and we're we're seeking a thruple, <laughs> and so we're recruiting at local technical colleges, and then I go into this whole thing about how the heat went off in our building, and everyone was away for Christmas, and so I had to figure it out. And that's what basically it's a long story, but it's like it's when I realized that I do not understand how heat works. And I went to college 
I mean, I, I'm I'm over I'm overeducated. I've read quite a bit. It's never come up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so like I, I feel like when I'm in life, when I'm dealing with the heat or the electric or whatever it is, I'm a mess. Or even in interpersonal relations. Uh, but when I'm on stage, I feel very calm. And in just to kind of test that idea, right now you are in a kind of slight, like you're in process. We're talking, you're in a <laughs> yeah, comfortable sure. spot, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like you're you're talking about the thing in the way that you talk about the thing. And so how calm, <laughs> this isn't too weird a question. How calm are you now? How calm are you now? You seem oh, I'm very calm. calm. I'm pretty calm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so how much of an audience does there need to be for you to achieve that state where you feel calm? Is, mm. is, is a recording enough of an audience? Is like an interviewer enough of an audience? Yeah, I think like, honestly, yeah, one person's enough of an audience. I think like, I do, I'm fine in a one-on-one situation. I'm fine in performing situations. Um, I think when you start, you know, if you think about, your day-to-day life you're walking down the street and there's a there's a dog walking by someone's walking their dog to to their to your left and the dog might sniff you so to your left your neighbor from your right might shout over hey mike did you notice the the mailbox is jammed and so then you're kind of dealing with the dog and the person and then it starts to rain and you realize you didn't bring an umbrella and so like you're dealing with multiple stimuli at once and i feel like therein lies and then you get to the train and and, uh you're wet and the train's not running on time and so then you have to run up and grab an uber the point is there in life there's i think so much more chaos than in a controlled environment like this (laughs) (laughs) and i'm just not good i don't think i'm great at the chaos yeah, I don't know. I think some people would, because there is an element of chaos to you working out a new idea, even if you have kind of uh, like branches of the tree that you know yeah. you're going to try and swing to next. What is that moment mid-swing but chaos? And I, I sort of feel like I really, I would, I would love to know. There's, there's a moment in, um, there's a moment in the Old Man in the Pool, uh, which I, lo- obviously, I love. It's a fantastic oh, show. Um, there's a moment when you say that you you're talking about your relationship with your parents and that you're talking about how you you never tell your parents that you love them. Mm. And I remember thinking, I can't believe that. It's I didn't. True. I mean, but, I'm, I'm sure it is true. But I I suppose I suppose what it means to me is like I feel like off stage Mike. I can believe that off stage Mike has never told, or, you know, it's not in the habit of telling his parents. But the you that's on stage that is delivering the well-thought-out, carefully-nested, structured monologue, suffused with fantastic angles and what have you, I, I feel like, oh, this guy, this guy would be okay with telling his parents that he loved them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't that's, I don't mean that to be a yeah, criticism. No, I'm it, just fascinated by the sort of the, the ambiguity. You're not wrong. I mean, it, and to give the full context of that to the audience, like they they didn't say they love me growing, you know, my whole life. And I, I say to the audience, I go, they they say, take care. <laughs> and I go, it's not the same. I go, first of all, it doesn't have the word love in it. Second of all, it's sort of a passive aggressive command. Like, I'm going to need you to do something for me. Take care. Yeah. And, and, and but I say, yeah, I don't say I love you to them. And I want to. But it's just it. We don't get there. I, I suppose that's just the dynamic that we're living in. A lot of that, in a way, that's a lot of what Old Man in the Pool is about as a show. Mm. And to, to, in this sort of circles back to what you're saying about processes, like how do you figure out? I think there. How do you figure out what your jokes are about? Your stories are about what are your shows about? At a certain point, I realized. Um, this recurring theme in this writing I was doing in the in the old man in the pool where I was like oh that's actually interesting that I my my parents and I don't tell each other we love each other and I'm saying it to an audience and about half the audience is like oh my god I have that too with my parents and about half the audience is like oh I say I love my parents and I tell each other we love each other but I but I know what you mean you know and so so I feel like that's how I arrived at that being something that was worth having an audience, you know, 
watch 80 minutes of expounding on with stories. So this is Mike. What are the consistent questions being asked of you and what consistent questions are you asking of the world? This is the good stuff, right? This is great. I'm so grateful to Mike for coming on. Um, and he's so uh, charming and humble and funny and all of those wonderful things. And um, uh, I'm just really excited about this. I won't talk to you for long just now, except to briefly spruik uh, that. That's an Australian word. I use it all the time. Do you like it? I enjoy that. That means to stand outside a, a thing, barking at people through a microphone, getting them to come into your show, um, which is what I'm going to do now on myself and Mike's behalf. And also, I love the Australian word schmick, which I think is... Uh, it's to do with something like we would probably say dapper. Um, but I, I associate the word schmick with a type of person that I would call executive carny. Uh, nonetheless, back to matters. Edinburgh, do not miss Mike's amazing show, The Old Man in the Pool. There are some in the extras to this episode. We'll talk about um, different elements that were added by in conversation with other comics or different um, perspectives that Mike uh, took and appreciated. And we'll talk about how to chisel away the possibilities that aren't part of this particular show. Um, there are, I think, one or two spoilers. I think we trod pretty carefully. If you would like to see The Old Man in the Pool completely fresh, maybe save up the extras. Um, but you can see it if you're at the Edinburgh Festival. He's at the Underbelly Bristow Square, which we're both fairly sure is the McEwen Hall, but you know, find out online. August 22nd to the 27th, so the final week of Edinburgh. Go and see The Old Man in the Pool. I know that is selling fast, so please get there quick. Um, September the 12th to October the 7th, Mike is going to be at the Wyndham's Theatre in London. And again, a little birdie tells me that that is very close to sold out. So get there. You can find out tickets for both of those shows via babigs.com and you can follow Mike at babigs on Instagram and Twitter and possibly even threads now. Who knows what fun that is? What larks? Um, my own show, my uh, my show Spoilers, which I refer to occasionally in this, um, in this conversation, uh, is my uh, climate change show. It's my climate crisis anxiety show and um, it's, it's cooking. Is it there? I don't know if it's there, but it's there. It's going to be in Edinburgh. I don't know if it's there, there, but we're two weeks away and I don't want it to be overcooked. And I feel like, oh, are we two weeks? Are we three weeks away? Sorry if I've just scared you. Um, uh, I feel so excited about it. And it's such a kind of manifestation of what I'm trying to do with my comedy that I've really got the kind of... I've really got the, the sort of a tickle on now where I'm like, oh, here we go. So please come and see that. It won Best Show 2023 at Leicester Comedy Festival. And you can get your tickets at stuartgoldsmith.com slash tickets. It's going to be at the Monkey Barrel at, I believe, 3.20. I've been saying that now for ages and I suddenly had a panic and thought, was it 5.20? I'm fairly certain it's 3.20. But it is also now spreadsheet day. So please tweet uh, on Twitter or indeed threads with the hashtag spreadsheet day. Or if you're on Instagram, try the same hashtag and um, put your spreadsheets up there for your deeply nerdy spreadsheets of what you're going to see at Edinburgh. The stuff you're going to... I mean, if you've colour coded them, so much the better. If you're in the ComCom Facebook group, that is probably where we will get most of them. Sarah Mahag very kindly started this by tweeting one at me and I thought, my God, we should have done this a month ago and I've been too busy writing and performing. So yeah, that, that was an attempt there to let myself off the hook. Guys, I've been too busy writing and performing. Um, so you can see there's a few previews left. I've got some previews coming up. You can find all of those at the link at stuartgoldsmith.com. Um, and that's that. It's it's exciting times. And let's get back to... Oh, there's the extras, of course, from this show. 30 minutes of extras from comedianscomedian.com slash insiders or appearing in your insiders feed just now if you are already signed up to support this podcast, which you know and love so much. Um, that's that. So let's get back to the second part of this interview with Mike Babiglia. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. (laughs) 
what things do you think are kind of habits of yours? Do you identify particular uh, performative or kind of structural habits of yours? And if you do spot them, do you are you comfortable with that, or do you think that a oh, part of the journey has to be always discovering a new way to? I think to, like to uh, like I had like a big discovery like maybe ten years ago, which has to do with. Um, conveying the story however which way it comes out so like for example there's this thing in my girlfriend's boyfriend which i would guess it's on netflix it might in the uk it might be on something else a rental or something like that but it's called my girlfriend's boyfriend mm-hmm. i performed at the soho theater years ago and and uh i act out uh i i basically say that when i was in seventh grade i had a crush on this girl and i invited her to go to a carnival with me and we went on a ride called the scrambler <laughs> and uh and i describe i don't even think it's probably called a scrambler in the uk i probably when i was there i probably asked what's a similar thing i think it's, it's called like, it's the waltzer or so i think yeah, it's called the waltzer so, but yeah it's clear i know the one something you mean, yeah. like that and and uh and i talk about eating like i think what in your country call, they call like fairy floss or something like that it's candy cotton, floss it's, sure. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, here it's cotton candy um and and so I'm, so yeah, floss and sugar floss or whatever. And then we eat all this popcorn and peanuts and floss. And and then and then we're on the scrambler together. And, of course, you know, to harken back to your point about Chekhov, like, you know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got the, all the food and then you're on this thing that spins you in circles. And in the in that moment in time, this is probably 15 years ago when I wrote it, I was like, I was always so hostile to the idea of acting out what something does, right? Like, I was always like, that's not who I am. My persona would never act this out. And then with this, with that scrambler, I just, I just thought, well, this, there's only one way to convey the motion of this thing and what it feels like to be on this thing. And so I acted it out like with my whole body, I was acting out the scrambler and I wasn't doing it to kind of like win over the audience in some way. I was just doing it to convey the story. And then it it ended up being kind of like one of my favorite pieces and from the show. And, and it taught me a thing about myself, which is like, which is like, I don't think that we should be, be ever be beholden as if we're if you're an autobiographical comedian it's like i don't think you should ever be beholden to what your persona would do because i think that honestly like that that makes the audience rest in their seat and predict what is going to happen or what couldn't happen and it and, and if you allow for going where the story takes you there's more surprises and the more surprises there are, the more the audience is invested in what you're saying. Yes. Yes. There are moments where you almost do like the kind of the narrative, the theater storytelling equivalent of a one liner. You yeah. know, the moment in the moment in the, the old man in the pool where you say, we don't get to decide the bits of our lives that we remember, mm, which yeah. I hope I'm not butchering. It's like, no, I think it's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. When you write those, I feel like, are they like the last bits are they like the last bits in the kind of structure that you go, I'm going to put that one there and now it's a bridge. Do you know what I mean? Or like, because I feel those things, I'm just interested in how you write them because they seem to carry so much weight to connect or to clarify the connection between chunks. And they don't have to be funny. In fact, you don't want them to be funny, but you're you're kind of having to write wisdom. And that's got to be harder than writing <laughs> a one-liner, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, no, I I appreciate it. That's so generous of you to say. Uh, it's definitely something that you know Seth and Joe and I all spend. Sometimes Ira like spend an extraordinary amount of time finessing the segues between things because uh, you know the equivalent in stand up is like you know of just straight stand up that isn't a solo show. It's like it's like. Um, you know, while we're talking about escalators, there's this thing about escalators. You know, it's like, yeah. and it's like you can't really do that in narrative storytelling. That kind of like this connects to this because it's essentially the same topic. Um, yes, it, it has. Well, your segues have to be so much more deft, don't they? <laughs> of course. Well, it, so it, so your segue essentially has to be something that feels causal or 
or even stream of consciousness. A lot of times it's like Seth and I will have long conversations about, okay, there's this part of the conversation which is about uh, swimming, and there's this part of the conversation which is about talking to my doctor about how I have to do cardio because I don't have good lung capacity. And it's like, well, how do those two connect to each other? And so a lot of times it's like, what are the le- what's the least amount of words that could get you from one to the other? And a lot of it's trial and error, the same way that storytelling is, the same way that stand-up is. Stand-up is so much trial and error. What about this segue? What about this segue? And a lot of it's like you reach a point where it's like, oh, okay, it feels right. You do it in front of an audience, and you're like, okay, that feels right. Like they, yeah. you, can feel, you can feel it when an audience loses you. Can feel it when an audience goes away, and so we're always on the lookout. We always have our antenna up for that. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really looking back at uh, my show that I did last night and thinking, yeah, that I, I can't ignore that one moment when I felt them go away, and I want to, I want to, I want to fix it. It's like for me, it's the moment when they realize I really am going to talk about the climate crisis for an hour. Do you mm. know what I mean? I kind of win them, and then maybe 12, 15 minutes in, somewhere around there. There was a set. They were very well lit. I could see their faces. Yeah. And I felt like I was like, either I'm doing a number on myself because I'm nervous about the show or I'm really registering a, a, a sense. I've got to trust that instinct, right? There is a, I'm registering that they're going, okay, okay. And, and that's where the work has to be done. But also, like, if your show is about the climate crisis, like, I feel like it's, it's worth digging into how does that affect your your specific life and your relationship with your child and all that kind of stuff? Because I think that the audience, it's like you can't dispute when someone gets up on stage and kind of bears their soul and says like, yeah, this is, this is how this makes me feel. And this is a, a story that happened that, as a result of this and all that kind of stuff um, without wagging your finger and saying like, we got to do something, <laughs> sure. but like, I don't yeah. like it's, it, but it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's always a challenge to do that. Yeah. Do you, do you have to learn different phrasings? Like, do you have to learn very slightly different phrasings of the, the kind of segue moments, those little moments of kind of like what I think of as the wisdom moments. I'm sure you don't call them that, but like, you know, the, the short sentence that says a powerful thing, like in order to know, like with a joke, you would rearrange the words of a one-liner till it worked. Do you have to do the same thing with those? Have you got to learn lots of different versions to go, that's the one? Definitely, definitely. God. A lot of times it's like taking things like that. Like there's this one where I talk about how I write in my journal every night because I find that if you write down what you're saddest about or angriest about, you can start to see your own life as a story. And when you see your own life as, sto- as a story, sometimes you can zoom out and encourage the main character to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's like a moment that's not a laugh, but it's like kind of like it, it brings you into my shoes, ideally, so yeah. that people are like, oh, yeah, that's why I write my journal or that's why I do a mental inventory of my life. And, you know, yeah. um, but I tried that out. I tried like 10 versions of that line out until I arrived at it. I, I think, honestly, if I'm being... I don't remember this exactly, but if I'm if I'm being honest, I think it's I tried out ten versions that were way more wordy, yeah. and I kind of just chopped it down. A lot of times, I'll write out something as a paragraph, like the fullest idea of it, and be like, "Okay, chop this word, chop this word, chop this word, chop this word," and then I'll read that as a sentence, and I'll be like, "Does it still mean the same thing?" I know this is so yeah. basic, but that's no, what do. no, no. That's well, it is, you know, but it's that's what we might do with a one liner or with a subject. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've. Been, very clear memory of a gig where I thought I had 12 new minutes of material about self-belief and I walked on stage <laughs> and something happened in the room and I just said the one-liner version of that and I was like well that is a that's a great line that I'm going to use for years but what do I do for the other 11 and a half minutes oh, I've had a, I can't gonna... tell you how many times in my career I've had a, like a 12 minute chunk and I've walked off and gone like I got a new 12 minutes and then like in the end it's, an, it's 90 seconds like by oh the end of the God. process it's 90 seconds Alistair Beckett King asks, I would like to know if Mike's focus on narrative with neat callbacks in the final story was in any way influenced by the British Edinburgh Fringe show or whether it sprung into existence independently because it's so different to what I think of as the structure of an American special. 
Now we've established you haven't been to. Yeah, I've never Edinburgh, been to Scotland, but, and uh, but we've we've talked I've about never gone to British... Edinburgh. I it yeah. really wasn't. I mean, honestly, like it seems like it would have been. Um, it's um, I it's it's more honestly, it's more of a theatrical play structure. I studied dramatic yeah. writing, playwriting, and screenwriting in college, university. I. I thought I thought I was going to be a screenwriter <clears throat> exclusively. I was convinced of it. Uh and then I got out of college and I realized that no one's looking for those. <laughs> <laughs> well, even less so than they're looking for stand-up comics <laughs> or playwrights or playwrights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the amount of ads in the newspaper for for playwright needed is there's not many. There's probably uh, a handful ever. <laughs> it's almost like a thing you'd see in a movie playwright playwright wanted it's like a conceit for a plot point um it's so then i i had been working the door selling tickets and bringing nachos to people's tables at the washington dc improv in college and i could see people's pay stubs you know I was, oh, this person's making 500 bucks to, to host or 200 bucks i was like i could live on that and so i just drove my mom's station wagon around the country to areas of lesser comedy concentration and I, 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 I figured out how to be a working stand-up comedian and then I circled back to writing a play, a solo yeah. play, which is what Sleepwalk With Me was. And then what's funny is, is of course, people people now go, oh, you're doing an Edinburgh show. And it's like, oh, that yeah, it's funny. It's, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's just the nature of, it's the nature of we're all studying the same theatrical masters, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a <laughs> just on sleepwalk with me that moment. Uh, there are two moments in particular stand out for me. One is when you're dying on stage, when yeah. the character on the stage is dying, and the blue light is in your face, oh, and there's this incredible yeah. faraway look in your eye, which I thought is informed by tough gigs. But I thought also, I mean, it's a really, really powerful kind of moment, particularly to a comic who knows what that feeling is from the inside. Yeah, that was... Um... Well, I was just wondering whether that was fun to play or kind of heartrending to play, whether that moment, you know, actually taping it... <laughs> That's a lot of credit to our uh, cinematographer Adam Beckman, who who really had a strong vision for that scene uh, and shooting that a certain way, uh, which was I, yeah, I agree with you. It's painful to watch. It was painful to act for sure because <laughs> it, do, it it is it definitely. I had to uh, evoke what it does feel like in those moments for when you start out doing stand up. I mean, people always say it's like the whatever it's you, the thing people fear the most is public speaking and i i think because you're you know you feel not you feel naked you feel kind of like your soul is naked on stage it's it's yourself it's just you mm -hmm. a bunch of strangers judging you i think the uh the the other aspect of that movie is the kind of the conversation with the with mark maron's character oh yeah he effectively says like the secret is just say that just say that just say yeah. the actual thing that's in your head and uh your character in the movie undergoes this you know beautifully accelerated version of the uh, the comedy evolution everyone craves which is oh i just started saying what was on my mind and suddenly everything was fine <laughs> no, <laughs> you know what completely I mean? like, and then, yeah. yeah and of course his entire personal life falls apart but but uh but his his act is good um and yeah that i mean that actually is pretty close to life it that it, I, the my 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 pivotal joke in my career was when i one time I said to, and it wasn't even a comedian I said this to. I, I go, you know, my girlfriend at the, at the time, different person that I'm married to, I go, my girlfriend, I think she's, you know, starting to get to the age where she's thinking about having kids, which is, which is uh, I go, it's sad because we're going to have to break up. And then I go, I've, I've decided I'm not going to have kids until I'm sure nothing else good can happen in my life. And I said it as conversation, and the people were like, well, you should do that on stage. And I was like, well, that would be bad for my relationship. And they were like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. And, <laughs> and uh, I always have to say that Pick to young one. <laughs> Pick one. I always have to say that to young comics which, uh, when they ask, which is, what, what do you do about how this affects your relationships? And I, I don't have – I go, let me know when you have – you have an answer. I don't. I don't know because <laughs> it yeah. never ends. It's not like it ends. I'm 45 now. It's like I'm still dealing with the same thing. Unfortunately, my wife Jenny is a poet, and 
you know, she's contributed to my writing over the years. We did the new one together, and uh, so she gets it. But it doesn't take away from the fact that as a comedian, if you're going close to the bone, you're going close to the bone, and there's other parties who are who are listening to that and hearing it and have to feel the emotions of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast in itself about that, but it's part of the cost, isn't it? It's part of the cost to you and it's part of the cost to other people who don't get to have all the adulation and the laughs. It's part of the cost to you. And it's also like, there's one way to look at it, which is that like, uh, there's a famous phrase that that is not my phrase, but it's uh, you're only as sick as your secrets, and it's uh, and I think it's kind of a beautiful idea, and I think like a lot of times people think they're keeping secrets, they're they're keeping secrets about like what goes on in their relationship or what goes on at in their apartment. And it's like, are we really keeping secrets? I mean, I think in some ways we're all kind of transparent in a certain sense in ways that we don't even realize. I'm just I'm just rolling that around my head for a second. You mean that you mean to say that you might think you're concealing something, but it's yeah. apparent to everyone around you. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like I have a joke right now that I'm kicking around. It's not fully formed on stage where I go like, you know, one time my wife said to me like, sometimes I feel like you're not happy, and I'm like, right. That 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 was my status quo before we met. That, that you know, you knew that. That was what was cool about me. Yeah. <laughs> you liked that about me. You know what I mean? And like. I feel like that's a joke where it's like it's like what am I really revealing, right? Like it's it's like I know like if you know my comedy, you know that I'm I have a complicated approach to to uh happiness and ideas and and like I've t- it's like I I I'm wearing that on my sleeve in my opinion. So am I really giving that much away? I don't. I don't think so. Someone else might, but I'm not. I don't think I am. And then I so the end of the joke is I go, I'm happily married. I'm just unhappily alive. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Mike. Um, I will post Amble at you in just a moment. But for now, thank you so much to Mike for coming along. Thanks to Peter and Gary and everyone on, on his side and his team that helped organise that. Um, I it was And thanks to Sarah Millican for introducing me to Mike in person many, many years ago. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that we finally were able to make that happen. And I'm thrilled to go and see him at Edinburgh. And I'm thrilled to watch him, as they say, taking a bath at the Edinburgh Festival. That has more than one meaning. But um, uh, I... I'm looking for, I mean, he's only, he's only doing the last week and he's already a superstar. So is that really doing the Edinburgh Festival or is that doing a, what, what's what we call doing a Bo Burnham? <laughs> so uh, you can look back to the, uh, the reviews from that year and the awards to find out what that means. Um, but I can't wait to see Mike up there. Really looking forward to seeing that show again. And you can find out all you need to at babigs.com. So he's in Edinburgh on August the 22nd to the 27th at Underbelly Bristow Square and the Wyndham's Theatre in London from September the 12th to October the 7th. Get in quick. There is no excuse to miss this one. It is a masterclass. Thank you to Mike. Thank you to Nathan for producing the show. Thank you so much to Rob Smouten for the music um, and uh, Brett Goldstein for simply existing and warming my heart whenever I think of his chiseled features. Um, and uh, thank you to uh, who logged it? Susie. Susie Lewis um, is uh, logging the show at the moment. She's our standby logger. Big love to Moz. And uh, I hope that I will speak to you very soon. I hope I'll see you at Edinburgh. And thank you if you're one of the people who's been coming to the spoilers previews and hanging around afterwards. Oh, big shout out, actually. I did a lovely show at the Hop Inn in Swindon. That's a really good room. Really fun, vibey atmosphere there. And also Little Drop of Poison on, I'm going to say Four Street, that's popped into my head, in Exeter, um, which is co-run by Will Adamsdale and a lady called Charlotte, whose name escapes me. And I know so many Charlottes, I'm not going to guess in case it's one of those, uh, one of the other Charlottes. Um, but uh, it's such a lovely room. I did a, a, a double preview there with Ed Goen earlier this week. He's going to be up at Edinburgh as well. Really fun Ken Campbell type, sort of fabulous storytelling type show. Um, and... Uh, uh, I just wanted to, uh, thanks to Tom Parry as well, who who came to that one and, and, and said very positive and warm things. 
about the shows. And I think um, I just wanted to, to shout out that particular venue, because if you're in the southwest and you're so f- you get further and further away from London, there's a little kind of comedy scene developing there. And um, it's a really lovely venue and the staff there really want to make it happen. It's a very lovely indie kind of alternative place in the otherwise rather mainstream Exeter. So that's all that. Right. Thank you. That's the lot. I'll post Amble at you in just a second. But um, thanks for listening. And next week, with luck, uh, an episode I recorded months ago now, which has been uh, paused. Hopefully by next week, it will be unpaused. And if it isn't, we've still got some absolute belters. And I've got Jeffrey Asmus coming up as well next week. And I'm I don't think he's going to cancel, so I'm just bandying his name around without him being in the can. But if you haven't watched his stuff, please watch his stuff. Very, very, very funny. We've got Johnny Pelham coming up. Who else is in the can? Other people. Just other people. Look at the list. Jeff Shaw. Jeff Shaw is in the can as well. And then I think it might be a little Edinburgh break after the paused one. If the paused one unpauses between Jeff and Johnny and Jeffrey, good Lord. (laughs) <laughs> Jeff, Johnny and Jeffrey. Ruth Bratt! I knew there was someone else. We have Ruth as well, which is an absolutely sumptuous, twinkling exploration of play and improv and or impro. And uh, and it is a, an absolute splash of sunshine. So that one's coming up soon as well. Right. Goodbye. post ambulance coming up. Cheerio. So, um... I've, I haven't decided yet whether I'm committing this post-amble to tape, but I'll just begin it and see how we do. I wanted to... What do I do in these things? I talk to you about what's going on in my little brain, and I often do that whilst going insane in a tiny, airless, lightless room, such as the one I'm in now. Um, I suppose what I wanted to share, which I feel eggy about sharing, but that's the stuff, go towards the resistance. Um, I... After this, basically, this interview with Mike happened at a a time when I had just had a really tough preview the previous night. It wasn't awful, but it was tough and it was local. And uh, there was sort of people, their parents there that I knew. It was like a sort of charity fundraiser very near me and their faces were well lit. And as I've mentioned before, the show is the, the, the climate anxiety show. Is it's funny, man, it's full of jokes and they liked it. They liked it. But some people are walking out and I'm thinking to myself, God, yeah, I'm getting walkouts. But obviously I'm not. I'm a people pleaser. And the type of person, the type of comic I am is grown around a failure to sufficiently resist this desperation to please people. And I, I don't mean a failure. I always got to talk about myself as if I'm dog shit on this podcast sometimes. And I, I have to remember to back myself. It was good. And they laughed lots. It is such an odd thing to talk about this weighty and, I think, important subject in a light, friendly kind of a way, which is not friendly, but a light, silly, a stupid kind of a way, but that says stuff. And I've been getting it right. And sometimes it's been going clunk and it is a fun and fascinating journey. I was feeling a bit bruised. And then something else had happened in in life in a wider kind of spectrum. Some other work I do and then something that was a bit a bit tense, like I sort of lie awake, wake up at three and lie there all morning worrying about this thing. And uh, so a few things were happening at once. And I was so nervous about the, the interview with Mike because I've been trying to get him on forever. He's up there. He's in the canon of... Uh, you know, Patton Oswalt and uh, Pete Holmes and people who I just, who I dare to not style myself after, but kind of recognise the particular way their brain works and something. You remember the Pete Holmes, I interviewed Pete Holmes live at, at Just for Laughs. And I had just started getting into the kind of the sort of star child, psychonaut kind of reality meandering stuff. And then I listened to his thing and I was like, oh my God, he's nailed it. This is what exactly what I'm trying to do. And he's 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 that much further on the path of having made those discoveries. So with Mike, I'm like, oh my God, I'd, I'd seen so many of his shows, as you would have heard in this, in this interview. I'd kind of researched and revisited so much of his stuff and just got really worked up about it. And I think I even vague posted in the ComCom group. And to the extent I was like, God, I'm so nervous. And, and people were saying very supportive things. Thank you if that was you. But I don't like to do that. That seems a bit, a bit mimsy, isn't it? Um, what I'm saying is I came out of this interview feeling that, you know, it's like watching Daniel Kitson for the first time as a young comic, where you simultaneously feel, my God, these are the possibilities. And at the same time, I should just probably pack it in. 
I had a just I, I haven't felt that for such a long time. And then after this interview with Mike, I just felt like, oh, my God, he's like the A timeline me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's the he's the process guy. He's digging into it. He's now got a very successful podcast about taking jokes apart and working on them and the process, and the creativity and all of this stuff. And he is just so wonderful. I'm kind of in awe of his his uh, output that I fell into, I won't say a black depression, but the confluence of that and then the other other factors going on at the time of the show and what have you. I just, God, I was just at the end of my rope. And um, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? Because I suppose, what it, what's the value to talking about this? I'm getting it off my chest. I'm confessing it. It's just a confession. And if there is something for you as a as a newer comic, if you are, if there is something about thinking like, oh, God, does that feeling ever go away? And this is maybe not a positive. Um, it, it diminishes and then suddenly fucking T-bones you, as, as they would say. Um, it, um, it really, God, do you know what I mean? It was just flailing around. I just thought I wanted to share it with you to get it off my chest. And I thought it was quite funny. You know, that thing about, you know, what are the what are the consistent questions that you're asking of the world. And one of mine was, oh God, am I any fucking good at this? It's, um, it's, uh, it's, I think you need to remain vulnerable, don't you? It's such an odd job. My God. The phases of being a comic as you go through the sort of the fun stage where you're going, I can't come to your party. I'm going to go to a gig. Woo. And then the stage years later where you're like, oh, no one invites me to parties outside of comedy because I've binned off all my friends in favour of gigging. And then there's the kind of now I'm a parent and I, I've got to try and do a version of my life whilst also serving the needs of other people rather than just gadding around the world having fun. And then there's the whatever this is, you know, I'm approaching... And so I'm approaching 20 years as a comic and there's a bit where you're like, that's a badge of honour. And then part of you inescapably is thinking, have I really done enough that I've been going for 20 years? Is that like, is it, am I proud to have been going for 20 years or is 20 years also a millstone round my neck? All of that kind of stuff. So um, all of that stuff bubbled up after this absolutely lovely, just invigorating, exciting, creatively satisfying conversation with a brilliant, brilliant, humble man. So um, uh, I thought I'd share that. <laughs> That's how I felt. And I feel better now. It didn't last long. Is that life comedy or ADHD? Just wait. Just wait. I've said this before. Alan Cochran years ago said to me that uh, Russell Howard had said to him, and this is we're talking like 15 years ago plus, Apparently, the, the second-hand uh, piece of advice was the great thing about comedy is no matter how you feel, wait three months and you'll feel completely different. Well, I'm pleased to say that after a couple of banger previews recently and and the... That's the other thing I tweeted earlier the week. When it's going wrong, just write jokes. If you're feeling wobbly, that's the thing. Remember that. Do you remember Catherine Bohart saying, could it be funny? You can be going through the worst thing in your life and a little voice can go, could, could this be funny? That combined with... I think of that all the time... And sitting down and writing for four, you know, a chunk for like three or four hours. And you will be a different human being at the end of it. So I did a bit of that. I've had some cracking shows and I've recovered myself. But I, I made a note at the time. Oh, you feel terrible. You should probably talk about this in a post-humble. So I did. Goodbye. Goodbye.